You're listening to Core of the Matter, the weekly public affairs show that airs every Tuesday at 7 p.m. here at 90.3 The Core. We're streaming live 24-7 at www.thecore.fm or 90.3 on your radio dial in the central New Jersey neighborhood. We're quite literally delving into the eye of the storm. Over the last month, we have read story after story, watched heartbreaking report after heartbreaking report, and heard desperately sad account after account of the horrendous storms that tore through the South and the Midwest over the past month. Flooding, tornadoes, you name it, states like Alabama, Mississippi, and Missouri felt the fast winds, torrential downpours, and the merciless wrath of, guess who, Mother Nature, casting down her anger upon this area. And storms this large and floods of this magnitude have not occurred in over 50 years and even closer to 75 years in some areas of the Deep South. Many of you have probably heard of the most recent disaster down there in a place called Joplin, Missouri, a place most people have not heard of before last week, when a massive tornado that lasted barely six minutes left a path of death and destruction in its wake. Death toll right now before we began this program stood at 146, with 10 people still unaccounted for. It's an extreme microcosm of the devastation manning the South are feeling tonight as we enjoy our hot and sunny clear skies today. But how did all this happen? What makes this area so vulnerable to the disasters it's faced over the past month? And why have we never had something this severe New Jersey memory? As it turns out, according to weather experts, it's pure bad luck. Professor Alan Robach, director of the Rutgers Meteorology Program, and environmental sciences professor Tony Broccoli, who also serves as director of the Center for Environmental Prediction. We also check in with Ronald Dorrell, emergency response director at the New Jersey Red Cross's North Jersey office. And we kick off tonight's program with part one of my interview with Professor Tony Broccoli here on 90.3, The Core. All right, so can I just start off with your name and your title with the university? Anthony Broccoli, Professor of Atmospheric Science in the Department of Environmental Sciences. Okay, great. So let's start by explaining what is going on with the weather, the whole wacky with the floods and the tornadoes and everything. What's going on down, down south? We've had a very active, severe weather season this spring, and uh, it has had a tremendous toll in terms of uh, damage and deaths from tornadoes and uh, severe, severe winds. Um, the uh, most recent uh, severe tornado outbreak uh, began uh, late in the weekend and has been continuing through the early part of this week with the biggest tornado being the one that hit Joplin, Missouri, a couple of days ago. But we had another big tornado outbreak in um, April uh, that produced uh, severe storms in Arkansas and uh, especially Alabama. The big storm that hit Tuscaloosa, Alabama, was part of that severe weather outbreak. And uh, it's been a very, very unusual uh, spring in terms of severe weather. Is this something new? Is this something you don't usually see? Well, we don't see uh, outbreaks this severe very often. There have been other severe outbreaks of a similar scale to this one. Uh, One of the big ones in the last part of the 20th century was in 1974. That was uh, called the super tornado outbreak, and uh, it also produced a, a great deal of loss of life and property 
uh, throughout the, the Midwest and uh, into the Mississippi Valley. And uh, I believe in the 1920s, there was another outbreak that was on a par with the one that we've seen recently. So they are unusual, but not unprecedented. So when something like this hits, people absolutely not prepared for it? Well, that's one thing that has become better over time. The ability to give greater warning, and when a, when a tornado is coming, every minute counts. Uh, for example, the Joplin tornado, uh, warnings went out about 25 minutes before the tornado hit. That doesn't sound like very much time, and it's certainly not a lot of time to make preparations, but it may be just enough warning for someone to get in a safer place in their house, uh, in a basement, or if they're in a public building, in, a, in a, a sheltered spot within that public building, to prevent the worst from happening. There's really not much we can do if one of these strong tornadoes is, is bearing down on even a well-built home. That, that home is largely going to be destroyed, so it's mainly a matter of getting people out of harm's way. So what is this warning system, and how is a weather pattern like this predicted in order to give that warning? There are several stages to the process. The, the first stage is for the forecasters who specialize in forecasting severe weather to identify the kinds of conditions that make tornadoes possible. So at that point, what they're saying is, in this part of the country, let's say uh, in today in the Ohio Valley, the conditions are such that we could see tornadoes, so we should be on the, on the lookout for the possibility of tornadoes forming. And that stage leads to the issuance of a, a tornado watch or a severe thunderstorm watch, which says simply the conditions are ripe. This is something that could happen over the next six to eight hours. Then the forecasters look using weather radar for the signs that a tornado is forming. A radar signature that indicates that the winds are rotating, and this rotation comes from the development of these strong so-called supercell thunderstorms, is the, often the first indication that a tornado has the potential to form. Forecasters also rely on reports from emergency services, police, the general public, for evidence that a tornado has actually been spotted. And once they have these pieces of evidence, either the evidence from radar that a rotating thunderstorm capable of producing a tornado is occurring, or evidence from eyes on the ground that a tornado or a funnel cloud has already formed, that's when the warnings are issued, very specific, saying your town is in danger, the storm will hit in the next half hour. Is that advanced from what there usually, what there was in the past, or because there was no warning system in the past, this is something, you know, even six to eight hours is significant? The, the six to eight hours to tell you to prepare, we've been able to do that for many years. Where the real development is, is in the introduction of these specialized Doppler radars, which can pick up the rotation of a storm. That has added to the amount of specific warning time because it can pick up the initial stages in the formation of the tornado before uh, anyone would be able to even see a funnel cloud or a tornado forming. Back in the previous outbreaks, like the one I talked about in the 1970s, a lot of the evidence that tornadoes were forming had to come from people seeing the tornadoes 
from the ground. And so that's been a big advance in the last couple of decades. That's a good thing. Yes, and another good thing is that people have more ways of receiving information now. They can receive warnings on mobile phones, for instance. They, the, uh, we have cable television with 24-hour weather, and so when people know they're in danger, they can tune in the right cable channel and see what's happening and get their warnings more effectively that way. So, so that has helped. Despite that, of course, uh, we still have these tragic situations in which people either don't get the warnings or can't get out of harm's way, and uh, those are the, the unfortunate situations that have happened a couple of times already this spring. For sure. I mean, this is there's only so much warning you can give, even though six to eight hours seems like a lot, and um, there used to be no warning system at all. It's still, it's still hard for some people to get out. That's right. And and uh, if we just think about what we what we do as we go about our, our daily lives, we're often busy and may not be in a in a position to to get the information. Now, of course, uh, towns in in uh, tornado country have. Uh, sirens that go off to warn that a tornado may be happening. So um, in the parts of the country that get these storms frequently, they are very well prepared for these situations. Why did everything happen at once? It seemed like it was a tornado after a flood, after this, after that, and everything kind of went one after the other. Why did that happen? Well, I think for the most part, the fact that the floods... Um, are happening and the tornadoes are happening, they're, they're somewhat related but mainly different. Um, you can get tornadoes, severe thunderstorms, hail, the kind of damaging weather that we've been having this spring without really getting a lot of rain. However, it did happen that during one of the earlier periods of severe weather in April, there was very heavy rain in the Ohio River Valley, and it's that water combined with the uh, melting snow from the upper Midwest that normally happens in the spring that really raised the water levels on the Mississippi River and produced the kind of flooding that is now gradually working its way downstream uh, into Louisiana and Mississippi. So to some extent, there's a connection, uh, but... Uh, it's also quite possible that we could have had the same flooding without any severe weather this year. So it's a you know it's probably mainly a bit of bad luck that uh, some of these some of these cities along the Mississippi River have had to cope with flooding and the threat from uh, severe thunderstorms and tornadoes. So it was sort of bad luck that everything happened at once. Yes, there are certain patterns that set up in the atmosphere, and when they set up, they, they can be persistent, and we have been in one of those patterns. Now, we are currently experiencing a La Nina in the Pacific Ocean. These are colder waters in the equatorial Pacific Ocean, the eastern part of the Pacific, and when we get a La Nina, there are certain changes in the atmospheric circulation that may be contributing to some degree to what we are seeing, but we had an El Nino, a La Nina, rather, uh, several years ago, and we didn't see the kind of severe weather in the spring that goes along with it. It's just the nature of the atmosphere that it sometimes locks into certain patterns, and when those patterns happen, uh, you can get 
the same kind of weather uh, occurring over and over again. For instance, last summer here in central New Jersey, we were very dry. We stayed in that dry pattern for most of the summer, and there's no specific cause for it. You can't say there's a specific reason why it happened. It's just what the weather does sometimes. It's frightening to think about that everything could just hit at once like that. Yeah, that, that is uh, one of the things that for, for those of us who study the atmosphere makes it very interesting to study because it is continually changing and we see things that we don't see very often. But uh, it does make it challenging because we would like to be able to predict that, let's say, this, this spring is going to be an active spring for severe weather, but we don't necessarily have the ability to do it because sometimes these are just due to the random uh, variations that can happen within the atmosphere. Has any Have any new discoveries like that come up with this new set of storms? Well, uh, every time we, we see um, something happen in, in terms of the weather, we do learn from it, even though it doesn't make up for the tremendous damage and loss of life and injury that can happen with these storms. These storms do represent an opportunity to collect more data about how tornadoes form. And the hope is, and the expectation is, that by having more information about how these storms form, that we can eventually predict them better. Even getting five extra minutes of warning can be a, a, an important thing when there's a, a very strong tornado bearing down. Interesting that comes up. But you're learning something like that with something so dramatic when people are just focusing on the human cost of what happened, that there's this whole other aspect of what's going on that someone's actually paying attention to. Yeah, and, and it's it's really very important to, to do that because that's the only way we can improve our predictions is to try to gain a better understanding of, of these phenomena. That's true. That's the only way anything's going to progress. So... When we come back, we'll hear more from Professor Broccoli about how these storms affect New Jersey here on RLC, WVPHFM Piscataway, 90.3, The Core. To Core of the Matter, our weekly public affairs show, which airs every Tuesday, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. here on 90.3 The Core, streaming live at thecore.fm, podcasted on thecore.fm as well. And you can hear it live in your 90.3 FM on your radio dial in your listening area. I'm Sarah Morrison. I'm your host. And we've been speaking about the devastating storms down in the south and the Midwest with the tornadoes and the flooding in the Mississippi River. And if this sort of phenomena can ever be replicated in New Jersey,
Jersey. We're about to hear part two of my interview with Professor Tony Broccoli, who says that it is literally impossible for a storm of the magnitude that we've been seeing in the South and Midwest to happen in our backyard. He'll also detail whether or not New Jersey is prepared to handle something of this magnitude. And Professor Broccoli is very qualified to speak about this. He's been a professor here and chair of the Environmental Sciences Department and the Environmental Change Initiative here at the university. Is currently the director of the Center for Environmental Prediction, which figures out the best ways to predict when these sort of phenomena are going to pop up. He earned his PhD at Rutgers in 1998. He also earned his uh, bachelor's and his master's from Rutgers as well. He's been a Rutgers man uh, through and through, and he came onto the show and he spoke with me about what we can expect or, well, more likely not expect from any weather patterns here. Without further ado, my second part of my interview with Tony Broccoli here at 90.3 The Core. When I spoke with Professor Robach, he mentioned that something like this could never happen in New Jersey. Why Why not? Well, the conditions to produce these extremely strong supercell thunderstorms that, that make the strongest tornadoes don't happen so much in the northeastern United States. The ingredients involve having very warm, moist air. Uh, that's the, the source of um, energy for, for thunderstorms is warmth and moisture. And a lot of that warmth and moisture comes from the Gulf of Mexico. Now, you might say, well, gee, then why do these things happen in the spring? Why don't they happen in the summer when, when things are even warmer and more humid? The answer to that is the second ingredient is you need to have a strong jet stream in the upper atmosphere. When we get into the summer months, the jet stream tends to become weaker. So spring is really the ideal uh, time for these things to happen because we still have a strong enough jet stream. The jet stream is normally strongest in the winter, not as strong in the spring, but still strong enough when you combine it with the, with the uh, warmth and the moisture. Now, here in the Northeast, the conditions are not quite as favorable because we're not as close to the Gulf of Mexico. We don't have the availability of this warm, moist air. We don't have the same contrast with uh, colder air that can happen in the Great Plains that contributes to, to this a bit. But we don't want to be too secure in thinking that these things can never happen in the northeastern United States in 1953, there was a very strong tornado comparable in strength to the one that happened in Joplin, Missouri, that hit Worcester, Massachusetts, so even farther north and east than, than we are. These events, though, are very rare. When we think of uh, tornadoes with that intensity in the northeast, it's something that maybe has only happened a few times in 40 or 50 years as opposed to much more often in the tornado belt. Okay, so it's more of an issue of location and potential than anything else. That's right. And, and we can get tornadoes in New Jersey that can do very significant damage, just not on the scale that we've seen from the Joplin tornado or the Tuscaloosa, Alabama tornado last month. Then why don't we ever see it? Why don't we? we? We do see storms that are capable of producing damage, but not the kind of damage we saw there. Those are very rare. That's like the Worcester storm that happened in the 1950s. There are things that, that happen so infrequently 
that I could live my entire life in New Jersey and never have anything like that happen during my lifetime. We just don't have the right combination of conditions for it to happen. Well, that's lucky for us. It is. Well, um, in the area, what, what's the closest? What's the closest? large-scale weather disaster that New Jersey's had. The, the bigger weather disasters in New Jersey are often associated with coastal storms, nor'easters, the kind of storms that can give us uh, very strong winds and heavy rain. We do have severe weather outbreaks uh, that can produce a lot of uh, a lot of wind damage, take down power lines, trees, etc., but not usually the kind that rips homes from their foundations. That That's uh, what doesn't typically happen here in New Jersey. The kind of damage we get tends to be from windstorms that uh, produce sustained winds over a long period of time, like coastal storms, nor'easters. There was a, a big storm in December 1992 that produced winds of 70 and 80 miles an hour along the New Jersey coast, produced a a big storm surge, that means the ocean water levels rose by about three feet and produced flooding all along the New Jersey coast. It even closed part of the Garden State Parkway because the water levels from the oceans and estuaries rose high enough to flood the highway. So those kinds of situations are, are quite extreme. Once in a while, we'll, we'll get the effects of a hurricane. Maybe that's something that happens every 10, 20 years or so, not to the extent and severity that, that we see further south in places like Florida, the Carolinas, the Gulf Coast. Uh, but if we go way back in time, a Category 3 hurricane hit the New Jersey coast in New York City in 1821. If a storm like that happened again today, it would probably produce uh, tens of billions of dollars of damage. I can't imagine anything of that large a scale ever happening here. Well, since it's been since 1821, the odds are we'll never see it. It's so interesting to think that there's so much, it's almost disproportionate how all these horrible things hit at once down south and the most we get is flooding, which actually brings me to my next point is that when the Mississippi River flooded down in the south, why wouldn't that happen with somebody like the route? And I remember, and Professor Robach mentioned Hurricane Floyd when everything was underwater, when Rutgers was underwater, and that's very, that rarely is replicated as well. Yeah, you see the uh, you see the route and rise a lot, but you don't see it flood in the in a manner that would significantly affect the way of life around here. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. Now there are some things that make the Mississippi special. One of the things is that uh, because it's used as a major route for, for transportation, for shipping uh, materials up and down the river. There's been a, a desire to you know, maintain its flow and protect people in the cities along it at the same time by building these high levees. The levees do a lot to keep the river in check, but when the river does rise to extraordinarily high levels as it does now, it creates other problems such as the need to deliberately spill water out of the levees in order to reduce the flood risk downstream. So the Mississippi is a little bit special. Also, by virtue of it being a very big river system, it means that floods take a long time to develop and they take a long time to move downstream. The Raritan, because it's a much shorter river, the floods tend to happen more quickly. They come quickly and they pass quickly. 
So Hurricane Floyd in 1999, which I remember very well, you know, we went to bed at night and it had rained very hard that day and the river was coming up. But by the next morning, it had risen to levels that had never been seen before. By 48 hours later, things were pretty much back to normal. So one difference is that our rivers here are shorter in length. That means their drainage basin covers a smaller area. So the water tends to run off more quickly and uh, it means the effects don't last as long. But another thing that's really important for the impact of flooding is uh, what you have at risk to flooding. If we think about the Raritan and we look at, let's say, the Piscataway side of the Raritan, we have Johnson Park. If Johnson Park goes underwater, that's inconvenient. It means people don't have those recreation facilities available to them, but it, it doesn't necessarily mean that anyone's house is going to be washed away. So some of the impacts also have to do with what we put in the floodplains, what, what kinds of areas are going to be flooded, and whether or not people are impacted by that flooding in the same way. Now, during Hurricane Floyd, that flood was, was so astonishingly large that it did uh, flood people's houses in Boundbrook, New Jersey, up to the second floor. There were people who were rescued by boats out of their second floor windows. So we do get things like that from time to time, hopefully not very often. That's for sure. I don't think I've ever remembered a time outside of what we were just talking about. I don't remember a time ever where things are flooded. Boundbrook, you hear about a lot of being underwater, but that's. it seems that it's nowhere near the level of anything that could happen near the Mississippi. And you made a really good point about the about Johnson Park because there's no one living there. It's just an inconvenience if it floods. It's not going to drastically affect anything. Roads aren't usually flooded. You know, some areas of River Road and alongside Johnson Park, and it cuts through New Brunswick and Piscataway and goes up to and it, it goes up through even the Boundbrook area. Sometimes that gets flooded, but it's not. It, it's nothing that's going to crazily impact anyone's way of life or commute or anything like that. Yeah, there's a big difference between closing Landing Lane Bridge and, and having people's houses wash away. So, so yeah, that, that is an important difference. Now, Floyd was the biggest flood, but it was only four years ago in April 2007 that there was flooding in this area that was serious enough that uh, Rutgers closed for two days, had no classes for two days, because it was too hard for people who were commuters and even some of the Uh, bus routes across the river were affected. That level of flooding wasn't quite as serious as as Floyd. Uh, Floyd made it impossible to cross the river at all, but uh, it was uh, pretty serious. If something to that large a level, to something that severe, if that were to happen, is New Jersey prepared? Well, I think we are prepared to a degree because we've had things like this happen before. And that means our emergency planners, uh, police, rescue teams are prepared to get people out of harm's way. Um, A more complicated issue is there are a lot of people in New Jersey living in flood-prone areas. We talk about parts of Boundbrook. There are parts of Manville here in the central New Jersey area. When we go up into the Passaic River Basin in northern New Jersey, there are places in Wayne and uh, along the Passaic River and some of its tributaries, the Pompton River, Ramapo River, where there, there is quite frequent flooding and people's homes are frequently affected, there uh, the question becomes, 
How do you resolve the conflict between the fact that these pet places are frequently being flooded and that people own this property and in many cases want to live there? There have been programs to try to buy the homes of people who are frequently flooded because they're in the floodplains and just sort of uh, uh, bulldoze them, take them down so that no one else is flooded in the future. That's something that's happening gradually, but as you can imagine, it can be very difficult for people to give up their homes, even if uh, they, they do know that there is some risk of flooding. Who's initiating this plan to buy back houses? I, I think most of that has been done by the federal government. Really? That's interesting. Is that considered eminent domain? No, no, they're, they're not. No, these aren't, these aren't forcing people to sell their houses. As I understand it, it's giving them the option to sell their houses. And in many cases, people may want to do this. They may be fed up with the flooding and concerned that they, they uh, won't be able to get enough money on the open market because certainly right after a flood especially, people are, are often very wary about buying a home in a flood-prone area. Mm-hmm. But, of course, these are personal decisions. And so some people may say, you know, I like my house or I'm not sure I can afford to get as nice a house somewhere else. So I'm going to take my chances. Maybe it'll be another 15 years before the next flood. And by then I'll be retired and move somewhere else. So what would happen to those in those floodplains? Let's say they don't take this program and what, and they stay and there's a flood. What happens to them and about how many people in this area would be affected? You know, I don't, I don't know enough about the details of these programs to be able to, to answer those questions very well. Uh, I do know that uh, the, they, uh, they do exist. They, I've, I've read quite a bit about them, but um, I don't know all of the details. So we'll hear from Professor Alan Robach from uh, Rutgers University, who will tell us more about more how these storms work, how they form, and why we will never expect them here. I'm your host, Sarah Morrison, here on RLC, WVPHFM in Piscataway, 90.3. The core. Welcome back to Core of the Matter, the weekly public affairs show on RLC WVPHFM in Piscataway 90.3 The Core. My name is Sarah Morrison and I'm your host. I'm sitting here talking about the recent storms that have been occurring in uh, the South and the Midwest and the effect that it has on the population down there and if we'd ever realistically see something of that magnitude and something that dangerous happen on this on the, in this area, I uh, just finished up my interview with Professor Tony Broccoli of environmental of the Environmental Sciences Department here at Rutgers, and he is absolutely certain that nothing could occur here because of different environmental factors. There's no way that could happen, and we would be decently prepared even if something 
slightly went askew. Uh, he would uh, he thinks that we'd be adequately prepared here to uh, uh, to take care of anyone who's left stranded, anyone who is stuck without electricity, food, water, or gets flooded out, or the roads get closed. He thinks that we'd be adequately prepared for it. We also spoke with Alan Robach, who is the um, he is the director of. Um, uh, a department at Rutgers University that deals with this. He's a uh, uh, director of the meteorology undergraduate program here. Um, he uh, graduated from the University of Wisconsin in 1970 with his BA, finished with his PhD at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in 1977, came to Rutgers um, very, uh, relatively recently after a long time at the University of Maryland, started Rutgers January 98, and he has been a professor, uh, professor two, which is a distinguished professor at the Department of Environmental Sciences, and has served in several other capacities as well. We spoke with Professor Robach, who explained to us how these storms, storms form, how they work, and why we can never expect them here. And without further ado, here's my interview with Professor Robach here on RLC, WVPHFM in Piscataway, 90.3, The Core. So I have you on to talk about the natural disasters that have been happening in the in the South and the Midwest lately with the tornadoes and the floods. And I wanted to talk about how that compares to a New Jersey makeup of anything like that has ever happened here. So let's start with what were the different natural disasters that happened over the past few weeks? Well, I guess you're talking about the flooding in the Mississippi River and the tornadoes that have happened in Alabama and Missouri and other places, Oklahoma, this spring. Those types of disasters are rare in New Jersey. The region where tornadoes occur is in the southeast part of the United States, and it happens in the spring. It's a combination of the warm, moist air coming up from the Gulf of Mexico at low levels and colder air coming down from the northwest from Canada, mixing with a cold front, and you can get very strong thunderstorms and tornadoes. And that's the one place in the entire world where you have the most tornadoes. In New Jersey, we just don't have the same figuration of the ocean and the continents and the weather to produce uh, severe tornadoes like that. There are occasional tornadoes in New Jersey. I think two years ago, there was one that came across northern New Jersey. So it's quite rare in New Jersey, but it's quite common in the southern Midwest. Okay, so you spoke briefly about how that happens in the Midwest and in the South. Can you go a little bit more in depth about how it's more common down there? Well, you need need warm, moist air that gets lifted by a front to produce energy for these severe thunderstorms. As the air gets lifted, it expands and cools, and the water condenses into cloud droplets, and that releases latent heat, and that's the energy for these storms. And so if you don't have warm, moist air coming in at low levels, you won't have enough energy for such severe storms. The same front coming into New Jersey, the air is relatively dry, then it it won't produce the same strength of storms. So it's quite rare for it to happen in New Jersey. This is the time of year that it happens too, because the air at upper levels has to be very cold to get the contrast for this warm air to, to it goes so high, and later on in the summer, the upper atmosphere gets warmer, and so you don't get such severe thunderstorms. Has New Jersey ever had a natural disaster on this level? On this level, I don't think so. The, the, the kind of weather that produces the biggest natural disasters in New Jersey is hurricanes, So, and these happen typically the late summer and the fall. So if you get a big hurricane coming in from the 
Atlantic Ocean, it can produce lots of flooding, and there could possibly be some severe thunderstorms around the edges of it. We had one at Rutgers in, better not David Robinson, the state climatologist, because he knows all these dates by heart. Uh, we had a big hurricane coming in several years ago with a cold front coming from the west, and it produced so much rain that it filled up the Raritan River. Route 18 was underwater. You, they closed the bridges going across the river, and Rutgers was closed for a week. And so that's quite rare. That happens, you know, once every 50 years or so when you get just the wrong convergence of weather systems together to produce that much rain. So for the most part, New Jersey isn't really affected by things as large. You, know, you hear of earthquakes in different places. You hear of tornadoes. The most I remember is the thunderstorm and the occasional blizzard. We're in a very geologically stable region, so we don't get big earthquakes. Sometimes there's some minor ones, but you there's not a fault line near New Jersey. So we're pretty safe from just about everything. Uh, you, these winter storms or or hurricanes can that's on top of high tide and produce a lot of coastal flooding and coastal erosion, but only if you get the convergence. I think it was Hurricane Floyd, uh, a cold front coming in from the west, and so the hurricane coming in from the east and it, the cold front acted like a mountain to lift the air a little bit more, and it just sort of stalled over over us, and, and, uh, and there was... Uh, I think it was Little River. There was terrible flooding uh, in the Raritan River, but that's quite rare. Is it only our location next to the Atlantic Ocean that makes us so susceptible to hurricanes? Well, hurricanes typically form, the the ones in the Atlantic Ocean form in the North Atlantic, north of the equator, off the coast of Africa, or closer to the Caribbean, and they can come in from the east and they can smash into Florida, smash in through the Gulf of Mexico, or come up the east coast. By the time they get to our latitude, they typically recurve and curve back out into the Atlantic Ocean with the westerly winds blowing them away from the continent. And so it's quite rare for us to get a direct hit. They don't come from the east to the west at our latitude. Occasionally, they come up from the south and smash into Long Island or Cape Cod, but that's not. they usually don't last that long, that strong to get that far north. So typically, we get a glancing blow as they're going northward along the shore rather than having them come directly in from the ocean. Once a hurricane gets over the land, it weakens rapidly because there's no source of moisture, source of evaporation from the warm water is cut off, and the land also has more friction that, that slows the winds down. So you don't get, even if they come in over the Gulf of Mexico into the United States, by the time they come up to New Jersey from the southwest, they're very, very weak by the time they get to New Jersey. Yeah, I can't remember ever recalling any sort of large-scale disaster, even hurricanes. I, I've, I've lived here all my life. I've never heard of that. So I've, I've, I've heard that before with the hurricanes that being too weak by the time they get up here. But sometimes, you know, we have a lot of uh, flooding, especially the Raritan, especially of along the coastlines. Um, is that a big factor? Is that a big problem? It's not a big problem. There's another fact, another thing that can produce flooding, and that's melting. Of if there's a lot of snow in the winter and the spring when the snow melts, and you could get some rainstorms. So occasionally the Delaware River gets very high, as well as smaller rivers, as you mentioned, the Raritan. But that's so. So there has has been flooding along along rivers just by the river, uh, sometimes in the spring. But that's not very common, and when it happens, it's a pretty small area. Rivers just aren't as big as the Mississippi, and so they just and and the and the shoreline isn't of the rivers isn't isn't so flat that the water can spread out for a large area. Yeah, I mean we've heard of 
And there are some towns and some areas that are especially affected by the riot and flooding. Uh, Boundbrook is one that comes to mind. I remember from Hurricane, you mentioned Floyd before when that happened. And when there's heavy rains, Boundbrook is usually underwater and some other places, maybe North Jersey as well. So it, I don't know if it happens frequently or if that just comes up every once in a while. But that seems to be the only, to me, the only major Not frequent. And, and so that, that one hurricane was just a very... Uh, unusual combination of weather of the hurricane and the front coming in. But Donbrook is at the bottom of the river valley, and so that's where the water can accumulate when you get too much water into the into the river. Okay, and to wrap up, do you think something this of, of that scale that happened in um, Alabama and, and Mississippi and along the Mississippi River, do you think something that disastrous could ever happen in New Jersey? And if so, what areas in New Jersey could this potentially happen in? As far as a natural disaster... I think the greatest threat might be from a very strong hurricane that just happens to smash in right from the, come up the coast and, and then come inland over southern New Jersey or, or, or the coastal regions. And that can happen, but it doesn't happen very often at all. So, uh, and it can be well predicted and we, we can predict hurricanes you know, days in advance. And so if, if such a thing happened, people would be, have enough time uh, to be warned. And now your property, so people could get away, the property couldn't. So people that live in low areas should have flood insurance as a national flood insurance program, or they just shouldn't build at low at, at sea level in the first place. Your beach home could be washed away by erosion from uh, even with the big winter storms, uh, nor'easters that come up the coast sometimes produce a lot of wind, rain, and local erosion. But <clears throat> I don't think a disaster on the scale of what we're seeing in Mississippi or a direct hit from a super tornado like we saw would be very likely at all in New Jersey. Now, of course, the greatest threat to New Jersey, I think, is from nuclear war. The nuclear weapons in the world, there are way too many of them. If they're ever used, even a war between India and Pakistan could produce a devastating climate change and hurt our availability uh, to get food and hurt agriculture. So that's an indirect effect, not a direct effect. And that's something that humans could produce, not a natural disaster. We will get into the relief efforts that we're seeing countrywide and what New Jersey is doing to contribute to them. Uh, how are New Jersey citizens doing their part? Um, we'll speak with uh, we'll speak with a representative from the Red Cross's Northern New Jersey office named Ronald Dorrell. We're going to speak with him. He is the emergency response director. He'll tell us the facts and figures and what we can expect. Only here on Core of the Matter here on RLC WVPHFM Piscataway ninety Thank you for listening to Core of the Matter, the weekly public affairs program here on RLC, WVPHFM in Piscataway, 90.3 The Core. I'm your host, Sarah Morrison, and we've been talking about getting into the eye of the storm, literally talking about the... Uh, the major floods and tornadoes and really, really nasty weather that's been hitting uh, the South and the Midwest. And we've been talking about how that relates to New Jersey. We heard from two professors, Tony Broccoli and Alan Robach, who told us about how something 
cannot be replicated to that magnitude here at New, in New Jersey, which is a relief for us, but kind of unfortunate for the people that are really suffering right now. But New Jerseyans are doing their part to help. Uh, we're going to get on the mic now with uh, Ronald Dorrell. He is the... He is the emergency response director for uh, the Red Cross's northern New Jersey region, and he is going to get into detail with us about the different relief efforts that are going on and what, uh, how many people and how much has uh, really come from New Jersey and how we're helping out our brethren in need. Without further ado, here's my interview with Ronald Dorrell here on RLC, WVPHFM in Piscataway, 90.3, The Core. Start with your name and your position with the Red Cross. I can. Uh, my name is Ron Durrell, and my position here is the Director of Emergency Response. Can you describe a little bit what the efforts of Red Cross has been making to help the relief efforts in the south after the floods and the tornadoes and the bad weather down there? Well, yeah, I certainly can, actually. Now, first off, I need to point out that we have been sending our volunteers from this area down into those locations throughout Alabama, Mississippi, and actually just recently into South Dakota. We have a total of 28 volunteers from this area that have been going down. The majority of those, uh, those volunteers we've been sending have been in the, in the medical field, so we call them disaster mental uh, health services uh, and disaster health services, the ones that, uh, that do medical attention and also that, that give psychological uh, attention to the, uh, to the victims. You know, our, uh, our primary concern down there is to provide food and shelter. But in addition to that, we want to provide emotional support for the people uh, whose lives have been disrupted because it's, uh, you know, it, it's been a devastating thing to them. And sometimes all they really need is just a, a shoulder to, uh, to lean on and somebody to listen to them. But we've been, uh, we've been sending our own uh, emergency vehicles down into that area to provide some of the feeding. And actually, I, at this particular time, I think there's more than 230 uh, herbs deployed throughout the, uh, the region. And we have currently uh, 28 operations that we're working on right now. But the, uh, the American Red Cross, as you know, has, has been on the scene just hours after the, uh, the various events in those areas. And uh, the primary concern, as I said before, our top priority is to provide food and shelter uh, to the victims. And that's really what we've been doing. We have uh, hundreds of shelters open throughout the area uh, and providing shelter to anyone who would need it. Now, in addition to the feeding uh, in the shelters, the herbs, which are the emergency response vehicles, they take the food out into the community. So the individuals who are or the victims that are there that are attempting to clean up or salvage anything that they can, our vehicles with our volunteers are there to, uh, to help them and provide food for them. And you mentioned that the Red Cross is here for physical and emotional support. Yeah, that absolutely. Because sometimes when you when you go through a situation like that, you're you're so badly traumatized that you just need somebody to talk to. You know, a shoulder to lean on. You know, somebody to listen to you. And we provide those trained individuals. These are, are these are licensed trained individuals that are providing the support. So you send counselors or volunteers who get trained to be that shoulder. Well, actually, they come to us first as licensed nurses, doctors, counselors. We train them in disaster services before we send them down, and then we send them to the location. They're there for about two weeks. Okay. Uh, how much aid has been sent from northern New Jersey in terms of the amount of people and physical 
food and shelter and clothing and emotional support, meaning sending counselors. We've sent a total of 28 volunteers just out of northern New Jersey. I do know the numbers for Central and uh, Jersey Coast, but you may want to get that from them as well. But we've got about 54, I guess, at this particular time out of the state of New Jersey, and 28 of those have come out of northern New Jersey. We've sent our vehicles down to the site. Now, I mean vehicles, I'm talking about our feeding vehicles, the herbs, those emergency vehicles that everyone sees at a fire. We've sent those down there as well. Now, as far as the, the actual food and, you know, the, the physical items themselves, the material items, that's all acquired on site. So we send the people the uh, their skills and the equipment down to those areas, and they pick up the food and, um, and other materials that they need right down there. Have you received any feedback from people who you sent down there? What's it like on the ground? Have they told you anything? They certainly have. And uh, you, you may have seen some of the articles that have been written by these folks as well, uh, both by the feeding individuals and also the nurses that we've been sending down. And it's usually been the same thing across the board, that it's probably the worst that they've ever seen. And a lot of our volunteers that are down on the ground there now have been through Katrina and other disasters. Uh, and they're saying it's it's the worst that they've ever seen. Worse than Katrina? That's saying something. Yeah, and one of the things is, too, that these people need to understand is the devastation that's there for the, ten- the tornado. Even though it looks like a wide or a long area, it, it's kind of isolated, where Katrina was was a massive area, you know that that can that, you know just took up many many miles of area. So on a on a broad scale, it certainly was an awful lot of devastation. But when you look at a tornado and it and it takes a, a swath through a community and wipes out you know houses on one side of the street and not on the other side of the street, but the houses that they wipe out are completely gone. It looks like a war zone, and you've heard that term used many times already. But uh, I mean that's actually what it what it does look like. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, the, the devastation is something that they, the, this nature of this caliber is you know, something that they've never seen before. Are you still actively sending volunteers and supplies down there or for well, the most part have you finished? No, no, actually. And it's going to be a considerable amount of time, too, that we'll be sending volunteers out. We just had one leave yesterday. They got a call while they were at their uh, Memorial Day picnic, and she left last night to go to South Dakota for the uh, flooding that's, uh, that's occurring there. So we're, you know, as they call, as the call comes in, we send people out. And they go out on a very short notice. Though they said the the, uh, the lady that left yesterday was at a picnic and uh, had to leave last night and get on a flight. So people are still coming up and still want to go. Well, yeah. We, we get, we, we're, we've been getting a lot of volunteers coming into our chapters wanting to volunteer. So we do the background check on them uh, to make sure that they are qualified to go. And we do the training uh, as well before we send them on to location. Are there people still coming and you don't have the availability to send them? Or are there too many volunteers? No, there's never too many volunteers. But there's a process that they must go through first before we can send them down. We, we can't just send spontaneous volunteers into a, uh, a devastated location like that without having the proper Red Cross uh, training. They need to be trained first before they can go into an area like that. So, you know, as they come in, you know, we, we do the training. I think we've had 16, I guess, come in this month, uh, which is you know, it's a fair number. We do the background checks, we do the training, and then they go on the, uh, on the waiting list then. Have you seen a rise in volunteers and people giving donations in a time like this? We have seen a rise in uh, volunteers. And as far as donations, we haven't seen it here at our location. 
National uh, has had most of the donations go through them through their national organizations. They're sponsors, but uh, we haven't seen the you know that many donations coming through here. You know, and, it, and it's I guess it's you know one of the things that needs to be pointed out too to uh, people who want to donate. And I'm hoping that you know this, Sarah, that that uh, the American Red Cross we do not receive any federal monies. The monies that that we get are from the American people. So the services that we provide to the American people comes from donations from the American people. We are not fairly funded like many of the other organizations. So at a time like this, you see the generosity of people who want to help out really come through. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And we could, you know, we could always use more funding, more donations, you know, to help support that those areas. Has your branch received a lot of monetary donations as a result or do you only have or you don't have anything specific to your region besides for volunteers that you've sent no we have received the monetary donations through here i don't know what that exact number is because that's a it's a different department i handle just the disasters but our development department handles the monies when it comes in but i do know that they are receiving contributions and we in turn of course take those contributions and forward it there. And how long do you uh, does the North New Jersey branch plan on having a presence in the disaster-stricken area in the South? Until it is over. We'll be there until it's over. We're looking at probably a number of weeks or even months that we'll be on the ground assisting people, but we'll stay there for as long as we're needed until the very last uh, victim has been serviced. But we'll, we'll stay there. And today, the Red Cross uh, in the area has served uh, nearly 800,000 meals and nearly uh, 1,600,000 snacks, has opened 240 shelters, and even even predicted some of the flooding areas and the danger zones and set up shelters as a result. Uh, They've they've provided nearly 23,000 overnight stays, nearly 28,000 health and mental health contacts, uh, distributed over one... uh, 1,200,000 1,200,000 bulk items as in cleanup kits and comfort kits, meaning blankets and other uh, things of that nature. And uh, 10,605 Red Cross workers are now in the area and um, over 90% of those are volunteer. So uh, thank you, Ronald Zarell, for coming on and really uh, coming on with us. And after hearing all this is you kind of feel helpless almost there's not much you can do from city new jersey we're lucky that we don't get stuck with this sort of um this sort of disasters but when we do we expect someone to help us so it's almost time for us to do our part as well we have what they don't have right now and it's very important that we are as helpful as we can with the resources that we're fortunate to have um in order to give back to them of people who are really missing uh who are their homes are destroyed their property is messed up and they don't have anything to their name right now the red cross is a great place to start donating and there are other funds as well in the area that you can uh, look into and there are many ways to give not just monetary if you're worried about that um, time is the most important thing you can be giving you know going through your closets giving your old clothes of any shape and size to or to uh, head that down there you can go through your pantry and send a few cans of food over and at times like these we are truly our brother's keepers and you need to remember it's not it's not government that's going to protect them. It's not FEMA that's going to come to the rescue. It's going to be us, and it's going to be our loving caring that gets them through the end of the day, and it's going to help them get back on their feet, the recovery effort, whether it's material items or getting our way through there or helping them out in any other matter. Thank you uh, to Professor Alan Robach and Tony Broccoli for coming on the show. Thank you again to Ronald Dorrell for coming on as well. For more information on Core of the Matter, the weekly public affairs show at 90.3 The Core, visit our website at thecore.fm.
Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Core of the Matter. We are on Facebook as well. Search for Core of the Matter at 90.3 The Core. If you have any comments or suggestions for a show topic, email public affairs director at thecore.fm.